0: Welcome to The Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this episode, Don Cooper is joined by the Ambassador of Hope himself, Andre Norman. Andre will be with us for three episodes where they discuss how truly anyone can turn their life around, the racial issues that still heavily impact American society, as well as what we can all do to help. I truly mean it when I say that Andre's story and his mission are some of the most inspiring out there, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next two episodes with Andre. As always, I truly do hope you enjoy this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Now please take it away, Don.
1: Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Don Cooper, with my co-host, Mr. Wyatt McPherson. Today, we have my pal and someone I really admire and look up to, Mr. Andre Norman. He is the Ambassador of Hope. We're going to talk today about his journey from going from prisoner into becoming a professor and his his mission in life now as a result of that whole experience that he has gone through. Mr. Norman, how are you, buddy?
2: I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. It's a little bit cold today, so I got my coffee, but... um. What's life with all of the code?
1: So, uh, Andre, I've got some interesting parallels that I want to tie in as we're talking. But tell me about your journey, where you started off, and what your mission is today.
2: Well, my journey, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. I went through some a lot of issues with my mom and dad in the house with domestic violence. Went through a lot of issues going to school. I went to school during the busing era, where black kids and white kids were forced to go to school together during integration. So we had to fight through that and struggle through that. Had to go through my dad leaving the house um, because my, my mom just couldn't get along anymore and she had had enough. So single mom, six kids living in the city, bouncing around, going to public schools, stressed out. Um, I found out in the third grade I'm illiterate, so I don't read and write well. And back then, um, still to this day, if you're a little poor black kid, rather if you're the support kid, you can't read and write. You got a thing called a dummy class. They just put you under the hole and they close the door. Luckily for me, a teacher intervened and she took me out of that class. She said, you just learn differently. She took the time to teach me my learning style. I get to middle school, I'm doing okay. Then I find out I'm poor and dad's not building ice sleds in the backyard and we're not putting up Christmas trees We're this poor. So people make fun of poor kids. It's hard, it's tough, it sucks. <laughs> and so I started hustling in the street to make money so I didn't have to be perceived as poor. I could wear nice clothes. I could pay for my own lunch. I could go to the movies. I'm still poor, but I'm pretending not to be poor. And that became like the theme of my life. Let me pretend not to be. And then when I got to high school, I used to be in the band, and I was a really, really great trumpet player. I still own my to this day. This is my little trumpet in my thing. And I was like a really, really good trumpet player. And my friends convinced me not to play the trumpet because it wasn't cool. So I gave up playing the trumpet. And I tell people, growing up poor, without a dad, living in the hood, all that's bad. But trying to grow up without a dream is impossible. So once I gave up my trumpet, I gave up my dream. It was a free fall. I just fell down in spite of steps in life and I woke up in court. The judge started giving out sentences seven to 10, nine to 10, nine to 10, 10. He just started reading off sentences. At the end of it, it was 100 years. Wow. did not count
1: that high. Again, I went to public school. I get to the prison. How, how, how old were you when that happened? 18. 18 and you got a hundred years worth of sentences. Yeah, when I got to the
2: prison, it was a reunion of all my friends from the dummy class, from the principal's office, from Juvie. It was just like, I knew too many people there day one. And I just got in where I fit in and I started running with the crowd. And now I'm running with the mob. And if you've ever run in a mob, you don't know where you're going or where you're gonna end up, what you're gonna step on next. So, and I just for six years, just participated in madness. Till I woke up one day and said, this is stupid. I don't want to be here. I can do better. I remembered my teachers always trying to tell me Miss Oliver, Miss Lane, Miss Bevilacqua, Miss McDonald, Mr. Solis. I can go down the list. All the teachers who told me how great and how smart and how intelligent I was. I decided to go their route. I said the right I was wrong because it wasn't getting me anywhere. And I set a goal for myself to go to Harvard and become successful. And I went to school, taught myself how to read and write. I went to anger management, taught myself how to control myself. I went to the law library, taught myself the law. And every day, 20 hours a day for eight years, I focused on bettering myself. I eventually won a case on appeal. I won my parole. I got released. And once I got released, I had a mission to just help people and go to Harvard. And for the last 21 years of my life, I've helped people in over 30 countries. I've worked at London Business School, I've worked with the White House, I've worked with Congress, I've worked with many states and agencies around the world. And in 2016, I was given a fellowship to Harvard Law School. And when I got my fellowship, for me, it was almost 25 years. It was 25 years of not quitting. It was 25 years of everybody said it was impossible. It was 25 years of this doesn't make sense a black gang leader locked in segregation for trying to kill people is going to go to Harvard. Now I'm standing here on the grounds in Harvard Square, in Cambridge, with a desk and a title and an email. And it was like just so, it was just like the ultimate. And I was just like saying, okay, cool. And then now I had to say, now what? From 1991 to 2015, I had one goal. I hit the goal. Okay, now what? And I set another goal for myself. And now I'm on that quest. And my new quest is to have the president of the United States in whatever year it is, appoint me, the czar of prisons and say, Andre, go fix our prison system. And then I will go about fixing the prison systems within within the United States of America, which is one of the leading incarceration states in the world.
1: Yeah, so 25% of all prisoners are in the U.S. system, aren't they?
2: Yep, and we don't make up anywhere near 25% of the world.
1: Not at all, no. So you spent, you were in prison and you were in the gang system for the first six years. You ended up in solitary confinement when you had this epiphany, right? I was,
2: I went to solitary confinement and I was sentenced to, in Massachusetts, if we do some horrendous stuff, they'll take you before a board and then they'll send you to solitary for a determined amount of time. So I was given two and a half years in solitary confinement.
1: And, and you sort of just said, hey, this is, you know, you were about to be, you were the number two gang leader at the time, or number three, and you were about to be the number one guy in, the, in that prison to run the entire gang system in, in, inside of that prison, right?
2: Right. I mean, I had worked my way up the fictitious ladder of pound for pound greatest, whatever you want to call it. And I had earned stripes, earned status, made all this wonderful stuff happen that I thought I was winning. And then I had a chance to bypass the number two and the number one and become number one. And it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz moment where Toto pulls the curtain back and it sees it's all fake. But think about it, at the time Toto and Dorothy realized that the Wizard of Oz is fake and this whole thing is fake, how many people actually lived in Oz? The people yeah. right there in the kingdom never blinked. The people along the road never, everybody lived in this fake kingdom worshiping this fake person. And nobody believed or cared that it wasn't real. Nobody was even trying to find out. They just accepted life for what it was. I went to go find the wizard because I wanted to be the wizard. When I got there, I found the wizard was fake. I said, man, I'm the king of nowhere. This right. is not the plan.
1: And then you said you did all that studying. You you did that eight <laughs> years of, of self-improvement inside the prison.
2: In prison. Um, yes. Yes. That's why my thing is, you have to start where you are with who you are. So, my step one was I had to go back to my cell and say, okay, this was stupid. This plan is not working. So, I had to first admit that the plan I chose was a bad plan. Then, I had to come up with a better plan, which was go to Harvard and be successful. Then, I had to convince myself that this plan was real. I had to de- detach myself from people who didn't believe in the plan, which was everybody. Then, I had to start saying, okay, well, who are you on? My first set of questions was, who is Andre? I'm black, I'm young, I'm uneducated, I'm locked up, I'm violent, I'm a gang leader, I'm in solitary confinement. I just made a list of all the things that I was. I'm short-tempered, I have no patience, and I don't reason well, I just made a whole list of who and what I really was in that moment. Not who my mother thought I was, not who my grandma thought I was, my girlfriend, who is Andre Norman? I wrote it all down. I said, "That's what I need to fix. What on this list can't go with me to that place?" And I started working. And the guy with a hundred-year sentence couldn't go. The guy with a propensity to stab people couldn't go. The guy who was, you know, saying one-sided, couldn't go. The guy who didn't listen couldn't go. The guy who carried knives couldn't go. So I had to work. And the guy I had to work on that list. The guy who couldn't read, I can't be illiterate and go to Harvard. Not working. I had to fix what was really on that list. And once I fixed it, then I put myself in position. There was no guarantee, but I put myself in position to
1: go. Right. And, and it was that work that you did that, that I, I guess, told the story that changed your ability to get 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 reconsidered for your sentence and your parole. If, if you had been that same person and you went up to say, hey, let me out, what would if the answer have been?
2: I have a friend. He's a great friend of mine. We've been buddies since early 90s. And we were together in 1993. I had already made my change. I decided I was changing my life and we we were still together in a prison. There was something about to happen. I went to him, I said, bro, something about to go down. I got your back if you need me. I'm not gonna leave you. I said, go check with your people and let's make this move together. He went and checked with his people. He came back. He said, man, Dre, they said, ain't no problem. Everything's good. I said, brother, everything's not good. Let's make this move before it gets made against you. At the end of the day, they said, we good. The next day or two days later, I'm in a child hall. A riot breaks out in our unit, and the other people moved against them. My friend went to solitary confinement. That was 1993. This is 2020. He's still in prison. And he's oh. still living that same exact life. He has the same mentality of attack, 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 the cold, represent. I ain't taking no shorts. This is how we live. And I talked to him on the phone. I emailed back and forth with him. And I love him. I love him. I love him. But they refuse to give him parole because of the mindset that he has.
1: You, you want to be the czar of prisons. Right now, you've got this process, um, the Academy of Hope. Why don't you tell me what you're doing there?
2: The Academy of Hope was founded about two and a half years ago. Um, I'm a speaker, a trainer. I'm running around the world. I'm on stages, I'm off stages. I'm speaking for some of the biggest companies in the world doing business and collaboration with some of the biggest agencies and people in the world. And I'm loving it. And I went to a conference in Minnesota in t- 2018. And I gave my presentation, prisoner to Harvard, and a lady came up to me out of the audience. She said, That was a phenomenal speech. My question is, can you really do it versus talk about it? <laughs> I said, you, you said you were this guy, you did this stuff. Can you really do that stuff? Or is it just stuff that you research and you talk about? It? I said, No, I actually do this. She said, Well, in South Carolina, we have seven dead people, we have 30 people wounded, we had a riot. And the entire system is out of control because we don't have control over the MH right now. And they're killing each other. We've had the entire system locked down for five months, 24 hours a day. Will you come to South Carolina? My first response was no, I'm busy. She stayed persistent. Then she did. She challenged my ethics. She said, where do you stand on behalf of helping people? So I changed my schedule. I went to South Carolina. I took two of my guys with me. The entire seven people it was a riot one day. Seven people murdered, thirty wounded, in about four-hour span. They locked down all 19,000 people, and they've been locked down every day since for five months. Because the report said when you open the door, they're gonna go at it again. Because people died on both sides from each game. So I came. We went in. We spoke at ten prisons over six days to eight thousand prisons, and for the first time in five months, they've been let out of their cells in mass numbers three, 400 at a time versus one and two at a time. And we spoke to them and I gave them what I believe was a message that made sense to them about how to improve themselves, be better and change. They agreed. And over that six day span in 8,000 prisoners, there wasn't one fight, wasn't one incident, one problem. So the director of the system, Brian Sterling said, Hey, can you come back and run a program? Again, I'm flying around the world doing a speaker thing. I'm great, 10,000, I'm on stage and like, hey, 60 minutes and I enjoy it, go to dinner, 60 minutes, meet fabulous people and you kind of move on. And that was what I was doing. he said, can you come here and help us with this? So what I did is I, for the most part, canceled like 75% of my speaking business. And I moved to South Carolina. And for two years, I lived in South Carolina, one minute away from the prison and I would go in there every day from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. And for the last for the last two years, we've run this program. There's been no staff assaults. There's been no um, stabbings. There's been no murders. There's been no use of forces. There's been no weapons found. You know I'm saying, and we had one fistfight when COVID started <laughs> over some hands. I mean, it was just a fistfight over something stupid. But again, no retaliation. And we went from seven dead people to one fistfight. And it was probably two weeks ago, in another unit, not our unit, there was a guy, one of the inmates jumped on a lieutenant and started stabbing him, and was trying to kill him for whatever the reason. He pinned him to the floor, and he was trying to kill him. And one of the graduates from Academy of Hope was in that unit. And he went over, and he pulled the guy off, him, and he saved the lieutenant's life. The lieutenant got out of the unit, then my guy fought the guy hand to, fi- hand to fist against a knife for five minutes until he disarmed him. And then, then he went from there. So the, then there's a, they are gonna, gonna play it later. Then the director went on, the TVs came, the news came, they said, well, they had it on video. We have on video this man saving his life. And they're saying, well, how did this happen? This man's doing a life sentence. He's never getting out. He's been one of the worst people in the system. Why would he do that? When Academy of Hope came into the building, I looked these men in the face. I said, you have to be the greatest part of yourself that you never thought was possible and bring that to fruition. You have to be better than anybody ever dreamed was reality. And I challenge them to be the greatest part of themselves and to do things that were above and beyond anybody's expectation. We set our own standards. Not fighting wasn't enough. Not stabbing each other wasn't enough. He saw a man being murdered. And he said, this isn't right. And he stood in. The fact that that man was a staff member didn't matter. Two years ago, hit him like saw a man getting murdered said, that's none of my business. Well, that's a staff person. I'm glad he's getting stabbed. That was the old self, the unchallenged self. The challenged person said, no, that's wrong. And I'm going to step in, even if it means I die. And he took the stand and he saved a man's life. And he got stabbed five times in the process, but he stood for what he believed in. And was willing to die for what he believed in it wasn't so much about the ceo because about what was right and we're trying to take that program and to other facilities because i have the most violent offenders in south carolina in my unit all the gang leaders and influencers and we're teaching them to be leaders on a whole nother level that nobody thought possible
1: it's interesting when you talk about what happened there it's you know it has so many parallels in business with people who need to speak up and intervene when they see something there's so many business cultures where people won't step up they'll see things that are wrong and they'll let it happen because they won't step in because they don't want to be vulnerable they don't want to get involved I mean that's an extreme example where you get in and put your own life at risk but uh, there's so many parts of culture in in organizations where the ability to rise above what is expected and, and, and intervene is such an important part of growth, isn't it?
2: It's huge. And step one is as the leader, in this case, the founder, we have to come in with the expectation of greatness. We, we don't come with the expectation of mediocrity or we're just going to get by or we're going to do better than we did last year. No, we're going to be the best and the greatest in this space. The fact that we're offenders or criminals or doing life sentences or gang leaders or influencers or bad people yesterday is irrelevant. I'm not talking about who you were yesterday. Who are you gonna be today? This is who we, we drew a clear picture of who we wanted them to be today and got them to believe in that. So as the leaders, we have to set an expectation and a standard that we want them to live up to. And yeah. then, we can then hold them accountable and help them walk that ladder to get to that place. We just can't say, well, they'll figure it out. They know right from wrong. There's right from wrong. And then it's like, Hey, it's none of my business. So within companies and cultures starts with leadership. Leadership has to say, this is what we want and be clear about that. Then transfer that information to the people beneath them or around them and facilitate the growth of that. So we spend day in and day out facilitating that mindset of greatness. I'm saying, and of better than, and of standards. And I mean, and now you look at folks and companies; they have retention problems every day. Ten thousand dollars in a better parking spot, your VP's gone. Not in my business. (laughs) My guys are all in. We built gangs that stand and die on corners, that stand and take a thousand years from from the courts and never turn around and never run. Now we teach them the same people instead of putting put their lives on the line. We can teach and we do teach corporate retention based on gang loyalty. We also teach greatness based on gang principles. And this is what you see in the end. The process isn't bad. It's just the placement of the process was a problem.
1: Yeah. The application of how they they put their skills to work had... uh had predictable but unintended consequences, right?
2: (laughs) I'm saying Mike Tyson, when he grew up, he went to prison for robbing people. And while he was in jail, he kept, in juvenile, he kept getting in trouble. Then one day, some counselor got tired of sending him to solitary, they sent him to the gym. Right. And he went to the gym and the guy down in the gym saw him, said, yo, and he called Cus and he looked at him and said, listen, Cus told him, Mike Tyson, I don't know, 14, 15, you're gonna be the youngest heavyweight champ in the world. When he first said that to Mike Tyson, Mike probably looked at his old white man like, what are you talking about? I robbed people for liquor. What are you talking about? I beat up people for candy bars. What are you talking about? Heavyweight champ. I've never been out of Brooklyn other than when I went to jail. Cuss saw greatness in Michael Tyson and spoke to it, then walked him through it. Same thing with Muhammad Ali. They showed up at the police station mad about a bike being stolen and the guy said, hey, go down to the gym and see the cop and follow the report. And the cop saw a kid who was angry and hurt and said, hey, I'm gonna help you through your hurt. I'm gonna teach you how to box. And out of that basement came the greatest champion ever in the world. Somebody had to see the greatness in him and then walk mm-hmm. him through it. And then the world got to witness it. Imagine if that, that the, the counselor never sent Mike to the gym. Imagine if the cop in Louisville, Kentucky Told little Muhammad Ali, get out of the gym, get out of here, beat it. I don't care about your bike. Compassion, courage, and leadership. Gave us two of the greatest fighters and one of the greatest people ever.
1: But I think it's um, it's leadership with some someone who took interest in it. Someone who said, I see something in you, and there's you can and you 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 can go down two paths. Let me help you pick the right one. You you talked about your childhood and you know that dysfunction and the loss of your father in the household and how you had to figure all that out i um you know you play trumpet i uh, i played i was in the school band and uh i played clarinet and then i wait
2: i was going to say he played the clarinet i should have said it
1: and then this is this is you know the how i didn't end up uh dead when i was a kid and I think I, I probably could have went down two paths. Uh, I lost my father at thirteen. He left the house because he died, and um, and my mom was a single mom, and we there was four of us, and you know, mom was a young lady at the time, thirty six. She had four children, nine through nineteen, and and she was lost and depressed, and so she be, you know she became absent for a while, um, not physically but mentally. She just wasn't there, and. I started to get you know, into not, not so much drugs, but a lot of alcohol. And I kind of was going off the rails at age 13, 14. But one thing that happened for me that saved my life in my opinion is uh, my brother and my sister were in something called army cadets. And uh, so I joined it and, uh, and there was some other things that went on in my life with abuse that no one knew about at the time. And I joined army cadets and uh, about, uh, about a year into that, I was on this path of drinking a lot and, and goofing off. And, and I was on a, you know, I was hanging out with kids four or five years older, my, older than me. And um, I was at this school dance out of my tree drunk and um, drunk and talked you know, and, was, and was talking. Uh, I got caught by a teacher um, and I started crying and talking about suicide and, um, he grabbed me and I didn't know who the hell he was. I told him to, I told him to fuck off and leave me alone. And then, and then he realized that I was in the cadets in his school. Cause this was a school dance at a different high school. So I thought this was freewheeling for me. No one knew me there. Um, turned out that this teacher who grabbed me was a Jesuit priest who was the principal of that high school. He was a badass. And he had a choice. He could have called the police, called my mom and went down that path. But he decided to find a friend and send me home. And at cadets on the Thursday night, because I was in the cadets in that high school, um, he pulled me aside and we, he started to guide me. And he became a role model for me. that set expectations for me and saw something in me and, and saved my life as far as I'm concerned. It was it was a pivotal moment that I I, I only realized years later that had that not happened to me, uh, I know exactly where I would have been in those teenage years. Probably in a similar place that you ended up by eighteen.
2: Exactly. All for the Jesuit priests, um, BC, Boston College Jesuit yep, school. Yep, you know yep. i Actually came to church through a Catholic program. They weren't Jesuits, but it's all the same same thing. So. Um, Shout
1: out to the Jesuits. Yeah, I got to give a shout out. Hopefully, he hears this. I haven't talked to him in years. Until recently, I had an epiphany about this in, over the last year. That, uh, and it was actually our friend Joe Polish, uh, who was talking about a domino. Remember, he talked about a, you know, who are dominoes in your life. And it was at that moment a year ago, and my wife was sitting next to me at Joe's event when we were talking about dominoes. And I went, "Here's a domino that saved my life." And it was this, and I had never told her this story before. And I said, this priest, his name was Len Attilia. He was a domino that changed the course of my life as a 14 year old who was going to go off the rails or, 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 or find a path. And, um, and he saved my life. And I think having some role model at some point who can guide you. And you talked about Muhammad Ali and you talked about Mike Tyson. And for me, it was Len Ottilia who who just found me at the right pivotal point to be a domino to change my direction Um, and you you didn't have that until you discovered it on your own many years later
0: thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of the amplifier podcast if you'd like to learn more or get in touch with either don or andre then you can always do so at any time at the links in the description of this episode make sure you leave a five-star rating it truly does help us out a lot and be sure to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode Thank you so much for listening again, and we will see you next time on the Amplifier podcast.